And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. Today, as we get ready for the inauguration of the first African-American president, we also honor the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. Today, we will bring you excerpts of his speech given at UC Berkeley in May of 1967, titled America's Chief Moral Dilemma. Stay, Stay tuned. Someone has said that when an audience applauds you before you speak, that represents faith. When they applaud in the middle of your speech, that represents hope. And when they applaud at the end, that represents love. (laughs) So you have demonstrated great faith today, and I certainly want to appreciate your heartwarming applause. I want to talk with you this afternoon from the subject, America's Chief Moral Dilemma. There can be no gainsaying of the fact that America has brought the nation and the world to an awe-inspiring threshold of the future. We have built machines that think and instruments that peer into the unfathomable ranges of interstellar space. We have built gigantic buildings to kiss the sky and gargantuan bridges to span the seas. Through our spaceships, we have carved the highways through the stratosphere. Through our airplanes, we've dwarfed distance and placed time in chains. Through our submarines, we have penetrated oceanic depths. This is a dazzling picture of our nation's scientific and technological progress. But when we look to the other side, something basic is missing. Our nation suffers from a kind of poverty of the spirit which stands in glaring contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. Yes, we've learned to fly the air like birds. We've learned to swim the seas like fish. And yet we have not learned the simple art of walking the earth as brothers and sisters. Henry David Thoreau talked once about improved means to an unimproved end. And so often, we have allowed the means by which we live 
to our distancy ends for which we live. It seems to me that this is expressed nowhere greater than in the continued existence of racism, poverty, and war. These are the three evils that I want to talk about this afternoon, evils that must be dealt with and problems that must be solved if we are to go on positively and creatively in the days ahead. Racial injustice is still the black man's burden and America's shame. This problem exists today because many Americans would like to have a nation which is a democracy for white Americans, but simultaneously a dictatorship over black Americans. This is one of the great problems that we find today. Now, in the struggle to get rid of racial injustice, there has been some progress, and I would not want to overlook this. For in assault after assault, the movement has profoundly shaken the entire edifice of legal segregation. And I did not go into the movements from the Montgomery bus boycott right on up through the Selma movement of 1965, movements which literally subpoenaed the conscience of a large segment of the nation to appear before the judgment seat of morality on the whole question of civil rights. But in spite of this, we must recognize that the plant of freedom has grown only a bud and not yet a flower. We must see that the struggle is much more difficult now. For well now 12 years, the civil rights struggle dealt with the system of legal segregation and the syndrome of deprivation and exploitation surrounding this system. And many things were done during those years that we will remember as long as the cords of memory shall lengthen. But what we must see today is that with Selma and the Voting Rights Act, one phase of development in the Civil Rights Revolution came to an end. Now a new phase has opened. And this new phase is a struggle for genuine equality. In the phase that has now passed, the achievements were obtained at bargain rates. It didn't cost the nation anything to integrate lunch counters. No expenses were involved. 
No taxes were involved. It didn't cost the nation anything to integrate libraries, motels, and hotels. It didn't cost the nation anything to guarantee the right to vote. Now we are dealing with issues that will cost the nation something in terms of billions of dollars. And the other thing that we must see is that we are now dealing with issues that will demand a radical redistribution of economic and political power. Many of the allies who went with us in the first phase are going in this phase. Many of the people who were with us in Selma and Birmingham were with us because they were sincerely outraged about extremist behavior toward Negroes. The problem was they were against Bull Connor and Jim Clark and their actions and all of their violence expressed openly toward Negroes, but they were not for genuine equality. And the true allies, the new genuine liberals, are the ones who recognize that we are in a new phase and who will go all of the way. And in this context, I think we should see the meaning of the so-called white backlash. And I hope you will understand that the so-called white backlash is merely a new name for an old phenomenon. We must honestly face the fact that there has never been a single solid determined commitment on the part of the vast majority of white Americans on the whole question of racial equality. On the Statute of Liberty, we read that America is the mother of exiles. But it doesn't take us long to realize that America has been the mother in most instances of its white exiles from Europe. It has never evinced that kind of maternal care and concern for its black exiles who were brought to this country in chains from Africa. And it is no wonder that in one of the sorrow songs of early days, the Negro could cry out, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. What we see is a constant moving forward, taking a step forward on the question of racial justice, and then taking a step backwards at the same time. In 1863, through the Emancipation Proclamation, the nation freed the Negro from the bondage of physical slavery. But the Negro was not given land to make that freedom meaningful. And we must never forget that at the same time, our nation was giving away 
millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that America was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor, while refusing to undergird its black peasants who were brought here in chains from Africa with the same kind of economic floor. Therefore, emancipation for the Negro was freedom to hunger. It was freedom to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without bread to eat, without land to cultivate. It was freedom and famine at the same time. In 1875, the nation passed a civil rights bill and refused to enforce it. In 1964, the nation passed an even weaker civil rights bill, and even to this day, it has not been enforced in all of its dimensions. In 1954, the Supreme Court declared segregation unconstitutional in the public schools. And now we find ourselves 12 or 13 years later with less, with less than 5% the Negro students of the Deep South attending integrated schools, and if it continues at this pace, it will take another 97 years to integrate the public schools of the South. Suburban politicians talk eloquently against open housing and at the same time and in the same breath contend that they are not racist. All of these things reveal that the white back backlash is nothing new. The fact is that America has been backlashing on the question of fundamental human rights for its black citizens for more than 300 years. There were no chance of black power when four innocent, unoffending, beautiful Negro girls were killed in a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and nothing has been done about it to this very day. We must see the problem where it is. The problem is that white America, and I don't mean all white Americans, white America has never solidly committed itself on the question of racial justice. And it means that now we must gird our courage. Those who are committed to the struggle for justice and freedom must work harder than ever before. For I'd assure you that we need this kind of activity and this kind of work more than we had it even in the first phase. I know that we're going through a period where there are understandable suspicions in some segments of the Negro community concerning the commitment of white Americans. And I can understand this feeling psychologically and otherwise. No one must allow this feeling to make us feel that the Negro can do this job all by himself. Somehow we must work together, realize that by working together and creating constructive, committed alliances, 
we can go on in the days ahead. And I, for one, am convinced that there are still thousands, even though they represent a numerical minority, of white persons in this country, many of whom are under the sound of my voice right now, who cherish justice and democratic principles above privilege, and who are willing to go with us all the way. And this is why I can still sing without any reluctance, black and white together, we shall overcome. Now the second evil that I would like to mention is the evil of poverty. Like a monstrous octopus, it extends its nagging prehensile tentacles in villages and cities all over our nation. Some 40 million of our brothers and sisters are poverty-stricken. Many of them go to bed hungry at night. I've seen them with my own eyes. I've lived with them in the ghettos of our nation. Poor people generally find themselves today smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. Now something must be done about this. Something must be done about it quickly. When we look at the Negro community, for an instance, we are facing a major depression every day. The unemployment rate among Negroes is set forth by the Labor Department at 8.4%. Unemployment in the nation general is about 4%. But they don't deal with all of the facts because they are dealing with statistics that can be gathered as a result of people who've been in the labor market and those who still go to the employment office to try to find work. They are dealing with the hundreds and thousands of discouraged Negroes, many of whom have lost hope. They've had so many doors closed in their faces. They've come to conclude that life is a long and desolate corridor with no exit sign. They've lost motivation. There may be another 7 or 8% in that category, which means that the unemployment rate among Negroes may well be 16%. Among some young people, among the youth in the Negro community in some cities, it goes up as high as 35 and 40%. If the nation as a whole confronted what the Negro is presently confronting economically, we would be in a major depression more staggering than the depression of the 30s. And it's not only unemployment. Most of the poor people are working every day but earning so little money. They cannot begin to gain the basic necessities of life. Something must be done about this. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. Ultimately, a great person is concerned about the least of these. And I contend that we still have poverty in America today because there are still all too many people who are trying to be conscientious objectors in the war against poverty.
There's somewhere else we ought to be conscientious objectors, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, but not in the war against poverty. The problem is, you see, we have the resources in America to end poverty. The question is whether we have the will. And if we are to end poverty, there must be a tremendous reordering of priorities. Senator Hockey estimated the other day that we spend $500,000 to kill every enemy soldier in Vietnam. And when you look at the other side, it's tragic. We spend only $53 a year for every person that's considered poverty-stricken, and half of that goes for salaries for those who are not poor. The question is, what are we trying to win today? I'm afraid that the administration of our nation is more concerned about winning an unwinnable war in Vietnam than about winning the war against poverty right here at home. And as a result of this war, we have diverted attention from civil rights when the guns of war become a national obsession social programs are thrown in the background consciences are not aroused as much about the injustices still existing in the society people ask why do you try to tie the issues Together, the issues of peace and civil rights, my only answer is that they have tied themselves together. <laughs> there can be no doubt of the fact that this war has hurt the civil rights movement, and this war is standing in the way of programs that could aid us in dealing with this new phase the human rights revolution. Another thing about the war in Vietnam is that it has made the principle of dissent one of the chief casualties of the war. And there is a mad attempt today, sometimes overtly and sometimes covertly, to equate dissent with disloyalty. And to say that those who are concerned about withdrawing from Vietnam and ending that war are venal enemies of our soldiers. Well, I want the record to show that I'm against the war. And one of the reasons, along with many, is that I see so many fine, bright, promising young men taken out of society, taken out of school sent away to fight in this unjust war. And what we are saying is that we are our boys' best friends because we want them to come home. It's time to come home from Vietnam.
Another casualty of the war in Vietnam is the humility of our nation. Surrogate determination, scientific and technological progress, as I mentioned earlier, we have become the richest and most powerful nation in the world. We feel that our money can do anything. We arrogantly feel that we have everything to teach other nations and nothing to learn from them. We often arrogantly feel that we have some divine messianic mission to police the whole world. We are arrogant in not allowing young nations to go through the same growing pains, turbulence, and revolution that characterized our own history. We are arrogant in our contention that we have some sacred mission to protect people from totalitarian rule while we make little use of our power to end the evils of South Africa and Rhodesia. We are arrogant in professing to be concerned about the freedom of foreign nations while not setting our own house in order. Many of our senators and congressmen vote joyously to appropriate billions of dollars for the war in Vietnam. And these same senators and congressmen vote loudly against a fair housing bill to make it possible for a Negro veteran of Vietnam to purchase a decent home. So I have a moral obligation to speak against this war and to take a stand wherever I can. And I want to commend all of you that have participated in some way. And I urge you to continue. And we must make it clear that we aren't going to let our political forces and the politicians ignore Vietnam in 1968, this must be an issue if that tragic war is still going on. And so as the war hawks escalate the war in Vietnam, we must escalate our protest against the war. A reporter said to me the other day, Dr. King, don't you think you're hurting your influence? Don't you think by taking a stand against the war in Vietnam, you are losing many people who once respected you? They will no longer listen to you now? Don't you think you must kind of move back, go more toward the administration's policy? And I looked at this reporter and said, I'm sorry, sir, but you don't know me. I'm not a consensus leader. <laughs> and 
I went on to tell him that I do not determine what is right or wrong by going out taking a gallop poll of the majority opinion. Ultimately, ultimately, a genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a molder of consensus. On some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? Conscience asks the question, is it right? And there are times in life that you must take a stand that is neither safe not politic, not popular, but you take it because it is right. And that is where I stand. As we get ready for the inauguration of the first African-American president, we also honor the birthday of Martin Luther King, Jr., with excerpts of his speech given at UC Berkeley in May of 1967, titled America's Chief Moral Dilemma, here today on Cover to Cover Open Book. This is Aaron Glantz, whom you might recall from KPFA's landmark Winter Soldier broadcast, or from my last book, How America Lost Iraq. My new book is The War Comes Home, Washington's Battle Against America's Veterans. I'm inviting you to join Norman Solomon and me when we discuss the horrifying betrayal of our troops by the government. The neglect must stop. The 